Welcome to a podcast called Intrepid. My name's Craig Forces. I am here with Stephanie Carvin, high above the Rideau River once again, for the next edition of a podcast called Intrepid. And Stephanie, what are we talking about today? Well, sadly, we're talking about the genocide case that is now before the International Court of Justice. Uh, it's basically a case that's been brought forward by Gambia, suggesting that the country of Myanmar, also sometimes called Burma, has engaged in a genocide against the Muslim Rohingya population uh, really since 2016. So that case has been brought forward. Canada is sep- uh, basically supporting Gambia in its efforts, as well as several other countries. So we thought that we would actually just kind of walk through this issue, uh, what the actual procedures are, and uh, the implications really here for uh, the situation and international law. Yeah, and and so maybe the, the starting point, Stephanie, is just to talk a little bit about the the facts on the ground and then segue into a conversation about genocide as a concept in international law and how it is that the International Court of Justice could, the matter isn't quite yet decided, but could conceivably have jurisdiction in relation to the events in Myanmar, as well as then talking about a parallel proceeding involving the International Criminal Court. Often in the public mind, there's a conflation between the International Court of Justice and the International Criminal Court, but these are quite different bodies and they apply very different uh, instruments in, in public international law. So this is our opportunity really to walk through uh, the niceties of that. Now, just on the background here, most of our listeners are probably familiar with the events in Myanmar and the repression of the mostly Muslim minority, the Rohingya, by the Burmese government, the Myanmar government. But just to, I'm just going to cite the concluding statement here that, the, that was issued by the uh, International Court of Justice Chamber Court in terms of authorizing an investigation under the ICC provision and which we'll get to in a bit. The chamber accepts that there exists a reasonable basis to believe that there has been since 9th of October 2016 widespread and or systematic acts of violence that may have been committed against the Rohingya civilian population, including murder, imprisonment, torture, rape, sexual violence, as well as other coercive acts resulting in their large-scale deportation. Given that there are many sources indicating the heavy involvement of several government forces and other state agents, there exists reasonable basis to believe that there may have been a state policy to attack the Rohingya. And so it's a Google search away, but for those who are interested, there have been a number of UN reports as well as reports from human rights groups about the actual extent of the violence. It is on a horrific scale and the consequences have been very dire and have precipitated a refugee movement, a displacement of the population from Myanmar into Bangladesh, which becomes important for reasons of the International Criminal Court's jurisdiction, which we'll get to uh, in a few moments. I was going to say, and just a shout out to Bob Ray, of course, who has been, I think, Canada's one of Canada's uh, envoys on this particular issue. And I know he's very much supporting uh, Gambia's efforts uh, at the ICJ right now. Right. And in fact, at the ICJ, there uh, are Canadians on both sides of the case that's being litigated. So uh, William Shabas who is uh, taught at the University of Quebec at Montreal, then went to Ireland, uh, international lawyer, wrote a book a number of years ago on genocide, probably the leading treatise, is actually representing the government of Myanmar. And in fact, on the other side, representing the Gambia is another international law professor from McGill, that is uh, Payam Akavan, who, as many listeners may know, was the deliverer of the Massey lectures a few years ago on international justice issues. And so there's a strong Canadian presence in this case. I I have to say, I do find it, I mean, like, look, we're not here to point fingers too, too much. But I mean, I I did find it surprising that Shabbos, uh, Professor Shabbos, was taking on um, the case for Myanmar. It, It seemed a little 
off-brand, but... Um, yeah, it, it did to me as well. I, I looked uh, to see if they had made any statements on this, and he hadn't, as best I could tell, just through a, a quick uh, Google search. So I'm not going to opine on that. But uh, certainly in, in the past, for example, when the ICC the International Criminal Court had indicated that it was prepared to assert jurisdiction. He had celebrated that as advantageous and an affirmative move towards international justice. But anyway, so uh, I don't know the backstory to that. Let's just let's just consider it duly noted. Duly noted, yes. Okay, so moving on then, let's let's talk a little bit about the concept of of genocide. There are in fact actually two uh, areas of of international law that really preoccupy us in this case. That is crimes against humanity and genocide. And the issues in front of the International Court of Justice are restricted, at least at present, to the question of genocide. And the reason for that is because there is, for genocide, a treaty regime. So, uh, frankly, the oldest uh, major international human rights treaty, 1948, the, the Convention Against Genocide. And so the Genocide Convention actually codifies the concept of genocide and also imposes obligations then on states in terms of both barring genocide, criminalizing it, bringing to justice those who perpetrate it, but also in Article 9, very unusually, I suppose, for some human rights treaties, very unusually there's a provision that says that the adherence to the obligations under the Genocide Convention, a state's adherence, can be adjudicated by the International Court of Justice. And that's really important because the International Court of Justice is, is effectively an international arbitral uh, body rather than a, a court that has inherent jurisdiction. So we think about courts typically in a domestic context where, look, if you're sued, you got to go to court. You can't really avoid it. If you don't go, the court can still impose a judgment against you. Well, that's not the way it works for the International Court of Justice, right? So the International Court of Justice can adjudicate disputes between states in what are known as contested cases, but the state has to consent uh, ultimately to being sued effectively, to being brought to the International Court of Justice. And there are a couple of ways that it can consent. Obviously, the the most uh, transparent way or the most uh, obvious way would be for the state to say in relation to a particular dispute, okay, in relation to this particular dispute, we agree to the jurisdiction of the ICJ, right? And so, you know, then there'll be an understanding as to the scope of the jurisdiction negotiated between the, the disputants and the ICJ will adjudicate in that space. The alternative, uh, sort of the in terms of a, of a more standing jurisdiction, would be states that uh, agree through the uh, submission of a compulsory jurisdiction declaration that they always agree to the jurisdiction of the International Court of Justice, at least in relation to other states that so to also issue these compulsory jurisdiction declarations. Now, it may well be that in the course of issuing these declarations, they will try to circumscribe exactly when the ICJ can adjudicate cases. And so famously, Canada, for example, will refuse to allow the ICJ to have jurisdiction over a dispute arising out of the North Atlantic fisheries uh, area, right? So this was the response to our patently illegal seizure of the Estai in the mid-1990s. This is the Turbot Wars. The Turbot Wars, right. You remember them well. And so you can you can play games as a pejorative way of putting it, but you can circumscribe the the inherent jurisdiction that you're prepared to accord the ICJ. But and it's but oh, I was going to say, but I, I think it also we should make clear to our audience is like yes, the ICJ is in the um, Genocide Convention, but there's actually no directions in the treaty itself as to how states should react to it. I mean, if you look at Article 1, it says the contracting parties confirm that genocide, whether committed in times in peace or in times of war, is a crime under international law, which they undertake to prevent and punish, period. There's no actual direction as to how genocide is to be prevented or punished. No, but the states do undertake an obligation not to do it and to criminalize Not to do it, but beyond that, it's also not just to not do it, it's to prevent it and to punish it. So if you're doing it, 
then you're in noncompliance with your obligations under the Genocide Convention. And so the question then becomes, is there a venue in which you can adjudicate the, that question? Yes. And, and the answer is, and this is a third basis for ICJ jurisdiction, you can have a treaty which on its own terms accords the ICJ jurisdiction to hear a case. And so this is an example. The Genocide Convention is an example of a treaty that provides in its own text that in the event of a dispute concerning the application, interpretation, or adherence to the obligations in the treaty, that can be adjudicated from the ICJ. So it's sort of a standing uh, jurisdiction that the ICJ has in relation to parties to that treaty. Sure, but it, like, I guess this is where I'm like, knock it off, lawyer, because it doesn't say it has to be a legal remedy. It, it the idea here is like you know so and, and I'm not there's a number of scholars who have actually said including Louise Arbor that actually our Article One the idea that you have an obligation to prevent and punish effectively means that you are required to intervene militarily if necessary. Yeah, that's not true. I just don't accept that, right? So well, let's, let's get to the remedies. A, but that's from a legal perspective. Yeah, let, let's get to remedies in a second, right. though, because we're still not there yet. So no. the, the issue is, okay, so the ICJ has jurisdiction to adjudicate whether you've comported with the treaty under Article 9. Um, and that's the basis on which the Gambia is taking this case to the ICJ, right? Now, the one question might be, well, you know, the Gambia doesn't have a vested interest in what's going on in Myanmar, but any state party has an, an equal interest in the compliance with this human right treaty as any other state parties. And, and the obligation not to commit genocide is what's known as ergo omnis. It's an obligation a state owes towards the entire international community. And so it could be any state party to the uh, genocide convention that in principle could bring this case. Uh, this is a case of the Gambia exerting uh, a certain amount of political courage, right? Because it frankly does not happen very often that, sure. that states feel any incentive to, to hold other, accounts, yeah. other states to account for compliance with these human rights obligations. Now, the other thing that the other reason why this is comparatively rare to see uh, these matters go to the ICJ is that that states have the competency as they become parties to these treaties to enter what are known as reservations. That is derogations from the obligations that would otherwise apply. So basically it's a little asterisk where you're like, okay, well, we reserve basically the right not to do this. Yeah, it's, to, it's like it's know, a treaty to, minus. To interpret it this way, yes. <laughs> yeah, so it's like, well, well, we agree to these treaty obligations except these ones. Now, there are limits on that. You can't reserve on a matter that goes to the object and purpose of the treaty. So reserving on the very admonishment that you not commit genocide is impossible, would be impermissible. Yes. But uh, there are many reservations on the jurisdiction of the ICJ to adjudicate compliance with the treaty. It's a very common reservation under the Genocide Convention. And I was a bit surprised, actually, because I had sort of assumed that Myanmar had entered such a reservation when they became party to the Genocide Convention, but they hadn't, right? So there's actually no reservation here that stands in the way of the ICJ asserting the jurisdiction that it, that the treaty gives it under Article 9. And so on its face, it looks like a pretty clean jurisdictional case uh, going forward. I, I mean, I, I, yeah, again, I agree with that, but I think maybe we're just going to disagree. Like, there's no auto automaticity to the ICJ having jurisdiction. No, no, there, and that's not yeah. what I'm asserting. Yeah. You have to basically stand up jurisdiction on one of the three bases that I've described, right? right. And uh, this, in this case, it would be the an authorization given by virtue of the fact that you're a party to the treaty. Right. Uh, now, the, the issue is we, we record this on December 10th that's being argued in front of the International Court of Justice is what's known as provisional measures, which is the equivalent people would probably know it best from a domestic context of an injunction. Right. And so pending an adjudication on the merits, which takes some time, the court would issue effectively an enjoining order saying, stop doing this thing while we decide whether it's lawful or not. And that's what's being adjudicated now. And so much like in domestic law, in terms of satisfying the court that there's a basis to issue these, uh, this injunctive or provisional relief, there has to be sort of a prima facie case. You have to demonstrate that there's actually good merit to what you're uh, suggesting that the court 
there's a good chance the court has jurisdiction, these sorts of basic uh, sort of mini-trial issues, uh, sort of a mini-adjudication on the merits. And I think there's probably a pretty good argument in favor of provisional measures in this case, although we'll wait and see what the court says. Right, because I think genocide is a tricky crime. Right. I think uh, it may be worth just actually having a quick conversation about what genocide actually is and how it's different from other kinds of crimes against humanity uh, or even mass killing. Because, you know, the thing with genocide, it's not a numbers game. Right. We sometimes can talk about genocide. Uh, Sometimes it's been I use this term not to diminish it. But, for example, in in Tasmania, there were 3000 Tasmanians were killed. Uh, in the 19th century as a way to kind of exterminate that a particular tribe of people. Um, but in Nanking, 300,000 people were killed uh, by Japanese troops. Um, we consider the former to be a genocide, but not the latter. Right. And that's because you have to have a certain intent. Right. And um, so it's, genocide isn't just about killing large numbers of people. It's about trying to basically eliminate them as a, a group. Right. For that reason. And it gets back to um, Raphael Lemkin, who, argue, you know, he was uh, someone who was witnessing what was happening in Europe uh, during the Second World War. And he actually coined the term uh, in 1944 and described it as a coordinated plan of different actions aiming at the destruction of essential foundations of the life of national groups with the aim of annihilating the group themselves. Right. And the actual legal definition that then is articulated in 1948 in the Genocide Convention, for the purposes of the present convention, genocide means any of the following acts committed with intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group as such. And so the enumerated acts of violence would be killing members of the group, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group, or forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. Now, and these are all things that happened in the Second World War. And these are all things that happen in the context uh, generally of war, right? And so you can have these acts of killing, including mass killing. At the same time, it can be a crime against humanity. It could also be a war crime if we're talking about an armed conflict. And it can also be genocide. But the elements of the offense are quite different in each case. And so for genocide, you're right. It turns in part upon, in terms in large measure, upon not just the act of violence, but also the intent. Yeah, and I believe that's called the dolus specialis, yes, the is. special motive. Yeah. I'm just throwing out my Latin here. Right. Right. And so you have to have this uh, malicious intent to, to destroy in whole or in part the, the group effectively. And the ICJ and its interpretation in past cases of the Genocide Convention has talked about the nature of the destruction. It's it's physical or, or biological destruction. And so the, the concept of cultural genocide, which you hear sometimes talked about, is not really embedded in the Genocide Convention, nor has been recognized by the ICJ. It was excluded, actually, in the drafting history of the Genocide Convention. It was, there was originally some invocation of it, but it sort of disappeared on the cutting room floor. And but so, there's a lot. I mean, like some people have pointed out, like if you look at like what what um, is considered to be a crime of genocide in Article Two, there's nothing there really about women. There's no there's no femicide. Um, some people have discussed like in Cambodia, there was you know when they they were targeting people of a particular um, status. So uh, for example, they were uh, the middle classes they they were targeting. So class doesn't count in terms of, of genocide either. That's been pointed out. So it is it is. I think one of the things we have to remember. I think in some ways. It, that the Genocide Convention is is kind of a backwards-looking document. To me, in a lot of ways, I think it's an important document. I, I'm glad we have it. I'm glad we you know are using it and discussing it. But in a lot of ways, it is trying to um, acknowledge what happened during the Second World War was just so abhorrently wrong that uh, it needed to basically be 
codified right. in some in international law. Right. And and the other acts which you just described are now more uh, carefully encompassed in the concept of crime against humanity as yes. well as war crimes and but we'll we'll get to those concepts in in a second. Sure. But, but we should probably complete the thought on the genocide convention because under the genocide convention in terms of the obligations that are then on states who are party to this convention and so the state is obliged to um, ensure that genocide or other acts that are associated with genocide like conspiracy etc that those are in fact uh, punished and in fact are criminalized. And so they have to give rise to criminalization through necessary legislation, etc. And also under Article 1, it says that the parties confirm that genocide, whether committed in times of peace or in time of war, is both a crime under international law, but they have to undertake as well to prevent and to punish it. And so that obligation on Article 1 to prevent and punish uh, gives rise in the absence of prevention or punishment to the prospect that a state will be responsible. And so when we talk about genocide, there's two possibilities. There's the, the persons who commit the actual crimes of genocide, and they're potentially personally culpable in international criminal law for their conduct. For states, though, you, you can't put states into jail, right? And so the concept uh, of culpability or responsibility in international law for states is, is this concept of state responsibility. And it says that if you don't meet your international obligation state, then you can be held internationally responsible. And then there are uh, obligations, not least an obligation to desist and, pot- and potentially pay uh, reparations, uh, compensation, uh, satisfaction, which is basically an apology. These are remedies that are available where you breach your international obligations. And so at issue in the International Court of Justice proceeding is Myanmar's state responsibility, not the individual culpability of those persons who actually committed the act of genocide. And so this is where we get to a conversation about remedies. And so let's say at the end of the day that the state of Myanmar is found responsible for not preventing, not punishing acts of genocide that took place uh, within its territory by its by its agents, by by state organs, in, in those sorts of circumstances, what's the outcome? Well, the outcome in terms of the International Court of Justice proceeding is effectively a cease and desist, potentially the prospect of of uh, compensation, uh, satisfaction of forms of apology, etc. But it, the ICJ is not competent to put anyone in jail, right? And that is a conversation that requ- the prospect of putting someone in jail is a conversation that needs to be had in relation to the International Criminal Court, which is a separate body. All right. And so, again, we're going to talk about that in a second, but let's just be clear about the possible outcome of the International Court of Justice proceeding. Yes. No one goes to jail. Right? It is about state responsibility. Now, you wanted to have a conversation about Article 1 and uh, this reference in Article 1 to the obligation to... Uh, prevent and punish. Prevent and punish, and whether that obliges other state parties to intervene forcibly to prevent a genocide. Uh, I know that argument's out there. I, it's, it, frankly, it's, it's not a persuasive argument, right? And so the only circumstances in which use of force is authorized in international law, they have to be compliant with the UN Charter. This treaty, the Genocide Convention, doesn't trump the UN Charter. And so the UN Charter, there are two circumstances. First, UN Security Council authorization under Chapter 7. And so the UN Security Council could well authorize use of force, all necessary means to suppress uh, acts of genocide that it viewed as uh, somehow interfering or uh, inhibiting uh, international peace and security. Or uh, use of forces can be uh, permissible under the UN Charter regime in self-defense. It's not self-defense in the international law sense, uh, t- in terms of the genocide committed by 
one state against its population. And so uh, I simply do not believe that the Genocide Convention changes the rules on international use of force in international law. It does not create a self-standing authorization to use force against the territory or political integrity of another state. I just don't buy it. I, and I don't find credible arguments that suggest it does. And so from a legal perspective, I think it's open shut case on that. Um, that is true. I mean, I, I think the response to that would be in, in some ways, like, if you look at this, like, you know, well, one, if you're not doing anything about it, that you're also in breach of your genocide convention well, obligations. That, that, and you're saying different. you have it and you're saying you have it. You, you're saying you have an obligation to actually bring it to um, court. Well, no, I would say that, look, if obligation not to commit genocide is an obligation a state owes towards all members of the international community. All members of the international community have uh, an interest in seeing that genocide isn't committed. And so how do they, how do they ensure that uh, they preclude or uh, minimize the prospect of genocide? Okay, well, trade sanctions or no uh, aid or assistance to the genocidal regime, right? So there are all sorts of measures that are available under international law, short of use of force, that I agree possibly could be required under Article 1 and more generally. Uh, I just think, I mean, practically, I mean, I understand what you're saying from a legal perspective, but practically, if you think of what happened in Rwanda, people were killed with garden equipment. Yeah. Like these, this was right. a coordinated campaign using radios. Sure. And, um, and the Security Council could have authorized very easily uh, a more forceful response by the UN forces that were in theater or uh, other forces. And so the, the issue isn't so much there's not a tool in international law. But there's no requirement under the Genocide Convention or no authorization under the Genocide Convention allowing unilateral intervention by another state in, on the justification that they're preventing genocide. The closest we get is this debate about humanitarian intervention, and yeah. there is no international legal basis uh, to intervene forcibly as a matter of humanitarian intervention. There's a whole constituency that wants that to be true, but there is just no state practice that, I, you know, there's I'm really sure, no but, state I mean, practice I, that really justifies that. And I accept that, but yeah. I, this is to me is the limit of international law. The UK, right? the UK takes the view that there's a right to humanitarian intervention. It's the only state that has actually emphatically made that statement, to the best of my knowledge. And in fact, it's actually been opposed by other states, including the United States. So, no, and, so, that's, and that's fine. And yeah. like you say, but to me, like that's a major limit of international law. And it's like, for example, if you have countries like China, Russia, whatever, who are taking these concepts and, and, and abusing them in ways such that, you know, genocide can proceed in, in certain countries. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, well, you want to hide behind the garb of lawyers and courts and things like that. This is where I get really frustrated. Yeah. And this is I, something we're probably not going to agree on. But I mean, to me, it's like if, you know, this if push came to shove, if a country wanted to intervene in a situation to stop this kind of behavior. Um, so perhaps like the fact when India went into East Pakistan into the 1970s and received a lot of criticism for violating international law, but effectively stopped a mass killing. Yeah. Um, well, and like, Kosovo. In, in Kosovo. Right. So, well, although, to, well, that's not a great example because then there was a reverse ethnic cleansing. Well, but, but the, <laughs> so, but I mean, so we can have an argument about the the law and the politics. So, on the law side, my my answer to you would be. It's not a failure of international law. It's a failure of international politics. The UN Security Council is fully competent to authorize use of force. And the sure. fact that it's not is a reflection of the impediments of international politics and the fact you've got spoilers in the form of Russia, especially Is this where the lawyer and the, and the political scientists point fingers at each other? Yeah, well, okay. So, so you, then you could say, well, but then maybe we shouldn't have permanent members who have the veto. 
Uh, and the answer to that is, okay, but we wouldn't have a UN charter, in, but, but for the existence of the veto. So at the end of the day, uh, the problem is that the powers that be, that is the states who exercise most power in the international system, simply don't take this seriously enough. And I think that's something we can both agree on. I just, this is one of those areas where to me, legal compliance is not always the best outcome. Yeah, well, so in Kosovo, the answer was that it was illegal, but legitimate. Right, and that was to, to not quote unambiguously you. illegal, right. Sir yeah. Adam Roberts. Right, and so in, in the UK Parliament, it did use that term legal, legitimate but illegal. Uh, yeah, right. And so the question is, um, and this goes to the on the ground reality. Okay, so let's talk about the implications of using force in in the interest of humanitarian intervention, so called. Right, and so how well has that succeeded? Right, so think about Libya. Is Libya better off now after 2011 than it was prior to 2011? Uh, if the Libyan uh, mission, which had been authorized by the UN Security Council, if the Libyan mission had not turned into a mission in terms of regime change, would the situation on the ground in Libya be better or not? I mean, the, the, the propensity is you, you go and you, you break the country and you get out um, and you don't stick around to fix it. Look, just going into a country doesn't necessarily mean it's a good idea. Just as not acting doesn't necessarily mean you're doing something virtuous. Yeah. I mean, we have, we have a whole episode on what happened yeah. in Libya and why, you know, that was a problem. But I think that's, you know, one, I just don't know. I mean, this is where, you know, we can talk about angels on the head of a pin or unfortunately a lot of dead bodies in different places all over the world. But... You know, it, it really is, um, you know, one of the I think this is the the pinnacle of the international wicked problem. Right. It's just there's no easy solution to this. Um, I think sometimes, though, that, you know, when we talk about, well, is this, you know, I just worry that when this becomes a primarily legal discussion even though this is the podcast, that, mm. that we, we do miss yeah, some not, of the It's of never the challenge. primarily a legal discussion, right? At the end of the day, the legal, the legal issues sometimes become the proxy for reflecting lack of political will, right? And so at the end of the day, if uh, there was enough political will in 1994 in relation to Rwanda, uh, that the, the legal niceties would not have stopped the international community. It certainly didn't, didn't stop certain portions of the international community, right? Um, at, at the end of the day, the, the legalities sometimes become a proxy, as I've suggested, for lack of political will, the, the inability, the unwillingness to even use the G word, genocide, etc. Mm -hmm. uh, so um, I, I, it's hard to blame the law in this area in the sense that the international law is a creature of states and if states like international law in its present form, that's, you know, it's because it's because the states uh, don't want to change it. I uh, know. And I think, like, look, I think there's a couple of things we agree on here. One is it's genocide is a problem of political will. 100%, right? If we can get states on board to do more things about it, whether, however, that's a good thing. Um, secondly, interventions can be very problematic uh, when they are, are military. I just think the third thing, like when we talk about like sanctions and, and arms, um, you know, the problem is like when you put an arms embargo on a territory, it's the people who already have the arms, which are often the state actors who are the ones that benefit because no one else can get arms. Um, so that's, that's one of the problems. Um, or like, you know, one of the major differences is, you know, this convention, it's, it's, it's in the fabric of the convention, I I think, which is that the the convention itself reflects World War II and the World War II experience and the fact that the Nazis were bureaucratic and they, you know, they effectively created factories of death that um, with, you know, do well documented, right? We could go back and retrace what they did and prove what they did. And now the, the genocides that happen are not, you know, they're planned, but they're through 
nuances and you have to demonstrate that people had effective control. And this has been a huge problem, for example, in Sudan, where how do you prove that, you know, various militias are effectively controlled by Khartoum? Uh, Or, for example, this was a huge problem in in some of the the Bosnian genocide cases where, you know, how do you prove that these effectively gangsters that are running wild on, on various ethnic populations are, in fact, running under orders? Sure they are, but how do you prove that? Yeah, well, that's that's less a problem with the concept of genocide and more an issue about uh, state responsibility because the same issues would come up whether you're accusing the, the insurgency of war crimes or crimes against humanity. And so just to be clear here, the obligation bearer for, say, genocide is the state. And so if you have non-state insurgencies who are running about um, and you want to say the state's responsible for their conduct, there has to be a sufficient link of agency, if you will. And so there's, yeah. there's a but test of effective control. But as I'm saying, we've struggled to, to because I think the way the convention is structured, one of the things we've really struggled with is that proof. How do you how do you demonstrate that? Whereas like in World War II, it was pretty easy because yeah. like, oh, look at all these records we found. Whereas now we're dealing with radio programs, um, you know, kind of nuances, wink, nods, like, oh, yeah. you know, literally the, will no one get, uh, will no one rid me of this tiresome sure. priest kind yeah. of situation. So, so that's an issue. Again, though, that's an issue for all international obligations. But, but more generally for genocide, I think the complicating variable, which relates to your point, is the requirement that you prove intent. Mm-hmm. How do you prove what's in the head of a state, right? And so... Literally that, yeah. yeah. That's what I'm saying. It's It's gone from being not as hard to... Like, what do you do when, you you know, you kind of have these shared understandings with, like, your fellow tribesmen that they understand that that's what they're supposed to do? All right. Should we talk about the International Criminal Court? Yeah, and because this is the other side of it. It's the other side. So, like, ICJ is state responsibility, but the ICC actually has the mandate and and ability to charge people. Right. And so the challenge is the ICC has its own jurisdictional rules, and they're separate and apart from the rules that govern the ICJ, right? So under the ICC statute of Rome, which created the ICC, the ICC has jurisdiction in relation to crimes committed on the territory of state parties or crimes committed by the nationals of state parties. And there's the prospect that the Security Council could also refer a matter to the ICC in relation to a state that's not a party. And so at issue for the Myanmar case is, not surprisingly, Myanmar is not a party to the Statute of Rome, which constitutes the International Criminal Court. And so what's the jurisdictional hook for the ICC? Well, the jurisdictional hook, as decided by the trial chamber, was the refugee flow across borders. And so here we had displaced Rohingya entering Bangladesh, and Bangladesh is a party to the International Criminal Court Statute of Rome. And so uh, there's a continuity, if you will, the the the, the genocide slash war crime slash crime against humanity is more likely to be crime against humanity than anything else in this context that results in the movement of persons across the border is... Uh, takes place at least in part on the territory of a state that is uh, party to the International Criminal Court firmament. And so that's enough to give them a hook into at least part of the conversation about the treatment of the Rohingya by by Myanmar. And in fact, uh, this was decided in November, um, November of this year. And so there's now an ongoing investigation by the prosecutor. The focus of the trial court's or the trial chamber's deliberations was not on genocide, but rather on crimes against humanity. So this is a point really to talk about the separate crime. So crimes against humanity doesn't have the same treaty basis as genocide uh, until comparatively recently. Crime against humanity was kind of more of a a generic understanding that really states began to talk about in the context of Armenia and the interwar period after the First World War. Right. So you're referring here to the um, basically the 
campaign against the Armenian population uh, by the Ottoman Empire between the First and Second World War, which a lot of Armenians have have, uh, argued is a kind of genocide because it was trying to remove the Armenians Mm. from their ancestral territory, uh, as well as, you know, probably trying to, you know, harm the conditions way of life in in such a way that we would recognize in the Genocide Convention. Canada, I should note, has recognized that as a genocide four times. Politically. Politically. Yeah, between 1996 and 2006, it's been recognized four times, it's mm. my understanding. Um, so I think that is, um, uh, that's just the context right. in which you're speaking. Yeah, and and to be clear here, of course, the Genocide Convention dates from 1948. The concept of genocide, Ralph Yelp Lincoln was t- was writing in the in the uh, Second World War. The, the concept of genocide, he coined the expression. There was yes. no concept of genocide in the interwar period. Uh, the, the expression hadn't been coined. It wasn't part of positive uh, public international law at the time. At the time, though, States who criticize the conduct uh, of the Turks refer to it as a crime against humanity. And that's actually the first manifestation of this concept of crime against humanity in, in at least political practice that I'm aware of. It, it then because, becomes, I mean, there, like in some of the, the treaties, you have some ideas of like laws of civilization. Right. And, and that crimes and, against civilized, uh, crimes against humanity in relation to civilized states. And so this is the kind of archaic language of the period. Yeah, of the 19th century. And we started, I so that was really the first time we really yeah. did see start to see that language. I think crimes against humanity. It sounds nicer than civilized states, um, and I think it's a little more, more palatable. Right. Um, is is where we start seeing right. It. And then of course it comes up in the context of the Nuremberg proceedings, uh, and thereafter becomes perceived as being part of what's known as custom international law. So it's not given a treaty basis, but it becomes. Uh, like uh, piracy or other international crimes that don't really have a true uh, treaty basis becomes part of the f- of this kind of customary concept of what what's a crime in international law. Uh, if you fast forward then t- to former Yugoslavia and you had an international criminal tribunal that was adjudicating crimes against humanity, genocide, and war crimes in the former Yugoslavia, you had an ad hoc tribunal for genocide and other, and crimes against humanity in the context of uh, Rwanda. And then you had the Statute of Rome in 1998, which articulates a definition of crimes against humanity. All right? And so a crime against humanity is, is, is a widespread systematic attack against a civilian population. And then there's enumerated examples of things that can constitute crimes against humanity if done as part of that widespread systematic attack against a civilian population, including murder, deportation, et cetera. And so the, the, the difference between, say, a single act of murder and a crime against humanity is the scope. It's part of a widespread systematic attack against a civilian population, and so it's a it's a it's it's a grave crime because of its its uh, amplitude, its its scope. Uh, it's different from a war crime as well, in the sense that while a killing in the right context in an armed conflict can be a war crime, there has to be an armed conflict, and so the prerequisite for a war crime is the existence of an armed conflict. The prerequisite for crime against humanity it doesn't require an armed conflict, right? And so there are different trigger points for these different sorts of crimes. And so at issue in the Rohingya context is clearly a crime against humanity. It's not really an armed conflict there. So we're not talking about war crimes. We've already discussed genocide, which is a plausible... In times of war and peace. In times of war and peace. So genocide is a plausible uh, crime in the context of Myanmar. And so too is crime against humanity, a widespread systematic attack against a civilian population that includes some of those brutal acts that I started this podcast by, by recounting. And that was the focus of the conversation, so far at least, at the ICC in deciding that the ICC had jurisdiction to proceed with an investigation. But, of course, the investigation won't be limited simply to crimes against humanity. It could well also start focusing on genocide. Right, because that's part of its 
That's whole because, statute. Because the, the statute of Rome, which creates the ICC, gives the ICC jurisdiction over war crimes, crimes against humanity, genocide, and other aggression, bad things. Aggression, which is now defined, although not all state parties have agreed to be bound by that that uh, concept of aggression. So, so it's interesting. So basically, we have two parallel trials happening right now, or is the ICC waiting to see how the ICG no, proceeds? Well, they, they, there's, they shouldn't. There's no reason to think that they're linked because they're they're dealing with different issues, right? One is state responsibility. One is individual culpability. For the ICC process, their focus is going to be on investigating perpetrators. How how is the ICC asserting jurisdiction here? Because the uh, because of the transborder nature of the crime against humanity in this case, uh, okay. the, the Rohingya are are deported, are displaced across sure. an international border to Bangladesh, and Bangladesh is a party to the ICC. Ah, okay, that, that would make sense. Yeah. Okay. And uh, so, yeah. Has Bangladesh brought this forward? No, because it's a self-initiated. The prosecutor initiates, the trial chamber signs off, and the prosecutor is now investigating. Okay. Yeah, so that's the current status of, of events in relation to Myanmar in terms of the international law side of things. It's interesting. I mean, we I feel like we've been discussing these issues so much since the, the mid-90s when we started seeing uh, the, the rise of these kind of um, what's, I think, erroneously called new wars, but uh, which was kind of the wars that we started seeing in, in Europe and Africa, which kind of conflate, you know, uh, basically militias, ethnic uh, tensions, organized crime, uh, sometimes great power sponsors, and um, just really kind of create these intractable conflicts that seem to go on and on and where the civilian population really suffers. And how we actually deal with this is just seems to be like something we've been discussing for uh, decades, and we don't seem to be getting any further. So it's going to be see- interesting to see if uh, either of these two processes advance the law in any way, or if it's um, just kind of really keeps it the same. I, mean, I think it'll be really interesting um, if the court ICJ finds there is no genocide. Yeah, uh, that's going to be. It hasn't rushed in the past to find genocide, and so in the Croatia versus Serbia case uh, about four or five years ago, it concluded there wasn't sufficient intent. Yeah, in, in which got back, gets yeah. back to that whole intent yeah. issue. How do you prove it? Yeah. So, uh, you know, again, a very important case. Now, more, more generally, I think in posing the question that you just asked, setting aside whether it advances the law, there's also the question as to whether it advances a settlement on the ground. and uh, Which which would be the end goal. Which would be the end goal. To right? stop this nonsense. So, and this is a, an infernal conversation we've also been having about decades about the interface between uh, peace and international justice and the extent to which do you throw a peace uh, under the bus in favor of international justice because you proceed with, say, the International Criminal Court proceedings in a manner that makes recalcitrant state officials even more recalcitrant because there's no upside for them to necessarily surrender power? Or do you throw uh, uh, international justice under the bus in the hopes of arriving at some sort of negotiated settlement which might involve impunity slash immunity for the conduct of state officials, right? So uh, there's no easy answer to that, right? And so there are obviously people in both camps. And I I think my own view is that one requires a certain level of flexibility in appreciating each case according to its unique circumstances. Right. All right. Well, that's it for uh, today. Uh, happy topic. Uh, not about the, yeah, it's the holidays. Um, <laughs> but we'll be back we're, with we're, another podcast We're soon. gloomy because we have to mark. Uh, also that. Uh, but it, it is a very like, serious issue. It's, it's, it, the, the word genocide gets thrown around uh, quite a bit, It is, but it is something with specific meaning. And this was definitely worth uh, talking about. And I'm sure we'll get back to it as this trial proceeds. Great. Thanks very much, everyone. See you next time.